Red to Black, a Homicide Life on the Street podcast. Uh, this is episode number seven. Correct. It's called And the Rocket's Dead Glare. I'll give you a brief synopsis. A Chinese political refugee is murdered. By the way, I'm Daniel. I'm Joe. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, that's... A Chinese political refugee is murdered. Bo Landron Munch investigate a murder of a man whose body is found in the park. Louis and Crisetti go to the Chinese embassy in Washington while looking in the murder of that political refugee. And after they leave, an FBI official tells them to back off. G is looking for Pendleton because Pendleton may be up for a promotion. Kay Howard nearly botches her testimony. This was written by George Zamacona, directed by Peter Markle. The story was by Tom Fantana. Interesting little side note, Amy Brapson debuted in this episode as Frank's wife, Mary. They are married in real life. Oh, wow. Which is uh, interesting. Yeah. Also, before we proceed, just to bring you up to date on what the cast is doing that's of interest, the cast from Homicide, Melissa Leo is starring in a Showtime uh, show called I'm Dying Up Here, where she plays a owner of a, uh, a comedic nightclub, and she's getting rave reviews. Yeah. So I would say that she's probably been the most famous alumni of, of Homicide, and yeah, she I, continues to do that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess everyone's doing uh, something interesting. I know she won, uh, I want to say it was an Academy Award. Uh, yes. I guess in the last, like, 10 years or something. Correct, which was yeah. Which was cool to see. Um, but yeah, that's uh, I wanted to see that show. I've heard I've heard good things. Um, yeah, that's cool. That's something we have been I guess talking about. Just uh, other things to throw into this show. If you have any suggestions for us, follow us on Twitter and you know shout out at us or um, or send us an email uh, from red to black pod at gmail dot com. Uh, and red to black at red to black pod on Twitter um, and let us know. Uh, yeah, we we love to hear from you. Suggestions to make the show better, and I think we have mentioned we we are and will investigate trying to get some of the stars of the show on future podcasts. Right. Yeah. We're working on that. Yeah. Why not? Um, so yeah. So well. Anyway, back to uh, back to the episode here. Um, it, it, so I think it was a, a great episode. Interesting. Um, it's almost like everyone's involved in a side quest on this episode, that there's not too much pushing along of plot. And at the end, really, not a whole lot different than when we got into it. All the stories kind of neatly tie up and resolve in this Good episode. point. Right. It was kind of a self-contained episode in that regard. And I wonder, too, because one of my favorite larger arcs of Homicide come in this, where it's uh, uh, Crosetti's uh, fascination with the... Lincoln assassination, and uh, like how I know he talks about it a little bit more in depth in earlier episodes. Is he uh, unsure of, uh, or he believes in some kind of conspiracy? Do we ever know, like, find out exactly what his conspiracy? I I I I think he thinks there because there was a conspiracy. Many people were hung over this. This was a big deal. Yeah, Uh, I know a little bit about it. But I think he thinks there's even more of a conspiracy than what's actually come out. But to me, he was like a little kid in a candy oh, store. Yeah, it's almost this, like... This episode. 
you're almost embarrassed for him with the way that he's acting in front of the uh, that federal agent. He's, he's gushing over him. But other other than that story, I didn't feel like there was too much that we saw. And I, I wonder, too, if this was... So this is seven weeks into the run of the show. Uh, if you've never seen... I'm, you know, I think I've said this in almost every podcast, but if you've never seen this show before, what a weird thing to throw in this, you know, uh, kind of like police procedural show is this guy's fascination with... Uh, with the Lincoln assassination, and again, portrayed in that way that you do kind of feel like a little self-conscious of if he doesn't. Right. But but again, I, I think it would be, it's the kind of episode, though, except for that you could show to someone who doesn't really know a lot, and they wouldn't get all the nuances that you or I would get, but you wouldn't have to explain a lot to them right. as well. And by the way, I think it's one of the few times they went outside of Baltimore to Washington, D.C. And you wonder, as we always wonder, was this something NBC wanted to broaden the horizons and get out of the dark city? I I really don't know. But it was the first time they really went outside of the city and took those gratuitous shots of the White House. And, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, that, uh, Washington Monument to prove they were there. Kind right. Of. right. And in addition, there were a couple other firsts that I noticed, too, in this one. Uh, one, of course, that you already mentioned is meeting the spouse of someone. Uh, That's right. One of the first things. time ever. We've never seen that before. And then two, also, there's a very brief moment where the uh, the precinct is empty. Right? You never ever see, when, when Pendleton is walking hmm. around, he's actually in G's office. Uh, like, you never see that place vacated. Because even in later seasons when they do show the tur- the changeover from the you know, the first shift to the second shift. Right. Uh, there's always someone in there. Um, and, and and there just seemed to be not a lot of people at the desks, extras. Right, yeah. It was very scarce. Yeah, yes, yeah, a Spartan room. <laughs> and then uh, also the first time that they're... I, I don't even know how to describe that area where G and Pembleton are at the end and having kind of that... That, like, heart-to-heart conversation. I, I believe that's on the roof of their building. Okay. That's what I think. But that becomes, like, a major place for this show. And you're going to see it in future but episodes. But this is, this is the first one that they've done there. I believe so, yes. yes. And yet, usually when they go up there, it's a matter of they got to really talk something through. Yeah, and it's funny. I was thinking of it now in terms of... One, what it's the conversations that take place there, and then two, also in just the logistics of putting the show together. Like, that's really the conversation that they're having there. You really couldn't just have that out in the open. And it's funny, at, at one point, um, uh, G says to Pembleton, uh, uh, or Pembleton says to G, Do you want to take me in the box? That's exactly where <laughs> you would want that conversation to take place. Because it'd be place. private. Yeah, some kind of private location for them. And so I know that that's a place that. We'll see again in later episodes, and it kind of becomes like a real like hallmark of the show of a place where they're going to go and maybe have conversations that we're not used to seeing about them. Um, cool. Well, that's kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but um, let's uh, we'll, we'll take it from the beginning um, with uh, uh, Meldrick Lewis and Crosetti uh, are at the scene of a pretty gruesome murder. I say so. Even by this show's standards, um, the broken fingers, a bag over a pillowcase over the head. Um, and we learned that, uh, it's, um, it was a student. He was, he, well, he was involved, right, we think he was, he was involved in Tiananmen Square. He was definitely a, um, the kind of person who was a protester. Um, so again, the suspicion is maybe the Chinese, um, 
had something to do with it. And, and as brutal as it is, of course, they still throw in the comedy where Crusetti says, there's something strange about this bullet here. It could be foreign. And, and Meldrick says, what? Bullets from elsewhere? What happened to Made in America? You're going to kill here? Buy here. Yeah. Just, you know... The yeah. comic relief and the the punchline on that scene, uh, well, that 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 part of that scene is uh, he's all ready to chalk it up as a homicide, um, which of course obviously it is not. Um, yeah, and then uh, we uh, we run into a st- uh, someone who comes in explains a, a woman that says that she knows who he was and and kind of goes into this really terrifying description of. Um, some kind of or to me it sounded like organized crime or 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 the chinese government that's yeah telling you to america threatening you i mean what she described was a nightmare right yeah that you, you you know where you know who you are we're going to call you in the middle of the night we know your family is in china we're killed them pretty horrible that is like a real uh, 0 to 60 first scene for this show like that that really like ratcheted it up and went went a lot further than a lot of the opens that we we've, we've seen in the past, um, which was interesting and it's, and we'll uh, you know we'll follow that that story through when they go to uh, to DC and then they go to the Chinese embassy. Um, that's surprising. I don't know very much about what it takes to be a cop, but it is a little weird they would go there first, right? It it it, it seemed odd to me. It seemed odd that they were let in, and I don't know if you caught this by the way. That Meldrick speaks Chinese to the ambassador or whoever meets them at the gate. Crosetti shoots him a look and he kind of says under his breath, there's a lot you don't know about me. And at the end, he says goodbye again in Chinese and Crosetti tries to mirror it. Mm. So there's they're just showing you there's a little more to Meldrick than you think. Yeah. You know, he's not some goofy... I mean, we know he's not goofy, but kind of comes across as goofy oh, sometimes. Totally comes across as goofy. But he is, he's a hes a great detective, and hey, he knows a little bit of Chinese. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it, when they're at the embassy, they're talking to this uh, this person who, who, who works there and says that they actually knew Wong. And I was like, whoa, oh, this is what a great reveal. And then you kind of find out that they were... Uh, this person who they're talking to was maybe a hand of the government that was uh, being... They had spoken through bullho- bullhorns, um, he says, where this old Wong, who is d- now deceased, um, I guess was rallying in Tiananmen Square against the, the government. Um, so an outspoken activist, we're kind of getting some shades of who this person is. Uh, right. That, you know, Very relatable to today when you think of Russia and Putin. I mean, I, I just felt like, okay, they're using China, could be Russia, and we know things happen to Russians that are, they're just killed. No one knows what's really going on. To me, very, it, it, it was a very apropos kind of current atmosphere sure. kind of a thing. Sure, I think there was a lot of that in this episode. Agree, sure. agree. Um, kind of some timeless, and again, maybe that's because we took a break from telling really like story arc with the characters and focused more on maybe issues that tend to be a little bit more timeless. Um, so uh, from there, uh, Meldrick and Crosetti, how do they end up uh, with the feds uh, stop them or, or come over and talk to them? Right, right. They kind of pull up and. 
Yeah, someone at the embassy immediately must have called someone and been like, right. look. Said they're these... being harassed, yeah. which was totally not true. Right. Well, they, you know, I don't speak uh, uh, Chinese. Chinese, so I don't know exactly what Meldrick said to him. Maybe he said something a little more menacing than yep. hello. Um, but yeah, uh, obviously, like, get, try to get the feds, federal agents involved in this. Um, and they sort of explained that the, the woman that they had seen at the scene of the crime now is on a plane that that wasn't the name that she gave them wasn't her real name and that she's on her way back to Beijing um, and you kind you kind of start to feel that they're gonna go nowhere with this once I heard that she had left the country already I'm just like this is not good for their investigation so what does that mean though that she's left I think the Chinese government got involved at that point and said to her, you better leave. Meaning, she didn't do it on her own. They they were involved in the killing. She didn't know they were involved. And, and she didn't kind of leave voluntarily. Yeah. My opinion. Well, it sounds to me like she did know. She, she knew something. She, yeah, she knew who was involved. But, it, but that's going back to the point. When she first brings it up, to me it almost sounded like organized crime. And then to you, you know, you said like the government. And, like, I'm wondering, too, like, the way that, that it's sort of open-ended in the sense that, like, you never really, they never come out and say, because I think even in that, in the meeting with the federal agent, uh, they say that, oh, does that mean that she committed the murder? Like, did she kill the guy? Well, no, that's not where my mind goes to, but maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? You really, to me, they really didn't. On purpose to me tell you what was going on. It was left up to you to decide who was involved. Right. Yeah. This, and this is uh, that like that deft touch that I think also was mirrored in other storylines in this episode, of like they're really not telling us the full story. They're hinting at it, and we're kind of seeing how these characters respond to it. But it, from a, the approach of the writers, isn't to give us all the information, and let us decide for ourselves necessarily. Because um, yeah, as they're that conversation with the federal agents as it as that storyline progresses through the episode it really becomes an antagonistic kind of argument um that's buttressed up against crocetti's fascination with uh with they end that scene of them their first sit down together with uh the federal agent saying is there anywhere you want to go <laughs> and like i'm thinking he must be joking but no he's 100 percent serious and uh, crocetti understands what he means right away jumps right at it yeah um I thought the FBI agent was interesting because he kind of played with them at that one point and said, I may not even be here if you come back. Yeah, right. So he, and then he just laughed. But he played it very mysterious. But I thought, even though it was antagonistic, I, I honestly thought he was trying to be straight with them. Like, look, you're not going to get to the bottom of this. You're not going to get back to the embassy. Yeah. You're going to be stymied. Just give it up, guys. This is going nowhere. Trust me. Yeah. It's going nowhere. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's I guess, like that, to me, that is like a beautiful, like, oxymoronic thing where, like, he is totally being straight with them by not telling them what they need to know. Like, this, because this is in red ink on the board for them. And it's going to stay there forever. It's going to stay there forever is what is what he's basically telling them. Now, does he know the information that would turn it? To... He he could. He's never gonna tell them. Right, right. But that's so that's funny. So that by in in a way where he is totally deceiving them, you're right. He's being straight with them and telling them, listen, this is how it's gonna be. 
Um, and then that really comes to a, a crescendo as they're out in front of the the Ford Theater, where of course Lincoln was shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. And um, uh, that the perspective of Mildred and the federal agent, where the agent says that like he wouldn't take a bullet for a politician, he's taking it for the country, the institution of the United States, which I thought was an interesting argument for them to make, uh, and distinction between those two. Um, and then. Uh, um, Meldrick sort of just like has had enough at that point. Right, and Crosetti is still interested. When he says we should let's go dinner at the White House, Crosetti's all in, and Meldrick is just like, nah. Um, he's passionate about Wong's murder. He can see past the FBI guy trying to placate them yeah. and show them a good time, and he's just like, look, this guy was brutally murdered. And it kind of goes back to, you're not going to tell us what's going on. So guess what? We really can't have dinner with you. Like, I don't want to get that close to you. That's how I felt. Yeah. Crosetti's blind to it. Meldrick is like, look, you're you're kind of a jerk. Yeah. You yeah know, you're it, lying to us. I think it almost, like, in a way, it kind of transcends um, the, the specific murder, the long murder. And it's... It's really, you know, him just kind of identifying, well, like, this is what you stand for. This is what you represent. Like, I, I have no interest in you as a person. You know, like, and writes him off. Which, which is, I mean, he's a federal agent. You know what I mean? Like, that says something. Like, um, there's a, you would think that there's some sort of understanding or brotherhood between, you know, the, they're both in that civil service arena. Law enforcement. Yeah. But every show we've ever seen, I've ever seen on TV, the feds and the locals they never get together. Other, they right? always they hate each other. They just hate each other. Always. <laughs> it must be true in real life. I don't know. Yeah. So that, uh, I think that pretty much ties everything up on, on that storyline. Yes. Is there any other, anything else you want to do? No. No. Uh, so that brings us to Munch and Bolander. Um, they're at the murder of... Uh, it's a van that is packed to the gills with marijuana, and uh, Munch kind of like shows his hand a little bit and totally diagnoses. A little bit, yeah. Where, what uh, what type of marijuana it's from? Where it was grown specifically? And by a highway, yeah. he, he kind of knows way too much by looking at it and smelling it. Yeah, kind of makes himself appear to be a bit more than uh, a know-it-all when it comes to to pot. Um, and uh, so that's that's followed by the scene where G is looking for Frank, but he runs into Munch, and Munch kind of lets you know what's going to happen in the next scene. He goes, Bolander went to Dickieville, to which I guess is a suburb of. Excuse our ignorance. We yeah, assume it's, it's a suburb of Baltimore. Yeah. Um, and th and there, Bolander talks to a a, a sculptor. Yes. So this this was like kind of a weird story to follow. I wonder if there wasn't a page or two more that maybe didn't make it into the episode. It it kind of because I yes I came off had, a little strangely. I had even that that scene that you just brought up with G and Munch in the the precinct. First of all, why is Munch not with them? And second of all, why uh, they I've never seen like a scene like that that where they set up what's about to happen. You know what I mean? Like it seemed like shorthand to like just catch up. Up. Good point. Week. Yeah, they kind of tip their hand. Yeah, it's yeah. not the way the show works. Yeah, right. Normally, uh, so uh, Bolander meets a sculptor, and what? I mean, what's even going on there? Was... You know what? I 
I don't even know. There has to have been a page or two that was Yeah, it was like the page of the script was left off or something. So it seems to me, and this wasn't a long episode. This was like 45, I think it got up to 45 minutes. Yes. Which is longer. They've been 42. So if there is a chance that maybe they shot a little bit extra that didn't make it to air, it seems to me like this woman had some kind of relationship with who they believe to be the killer or the person that was shot in the head. Honestly, I was totally mystified. Yeah. Hmm. Well, um... And, you know, honestly, it wasn't a particularly compelling scene. No, it was not. The only interesting thing, when he said you need help with the groceries, it's because he saw her crutches. Yeah. And she says, oh, you've been spying on me. And he's like, no. And I felt, you know, he didn't say anything, but I thought it was cool how... He used his powers of observation yeah. to check her out. Well, that's also, he was saying that that's why she knew the person. and that's why she right. And she was saying that this person's so sweet and, and, well, I guess if he's like running chores around the house for her. That's correct. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't, I, I I'm just, not entirely I, yeah. sure what's going on with that storyline. I, I, I agree. Um, agree. It's a little weird. And where do we come back to that? Um... It's when they're they're out in front of someone's house now, right? They're gonna make a drug bust. Again, not sure how does that how they into... got there. <laughs> yeah, but here some firsts as well. To me, that was one of the maybe not the first, but the kind of one of the first things where they're in jeopardy a little bit. I mean, we've seen them arrest people before, but it was a little more dangerous. They were breaking down a door, guns they, out, guns out, making an arrest. Yeah. But before they go in, I mean, Munch just goes off on, you know, being anti-drug law. Yeah. And goes into this whole thing about racism and suffer. I mean, he just goes off on a rant. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, you like, uh, just from what the little that I know about Richard Belzer from outside of this show, like... It really seems like there's a lot of his personality is tied into John Munch, which of course is probably what helps make John Munch such a a character that appears so often in so many different uh, shows, um, you know, because it is so steeped in a realness and a perspective that you know comes from somewhere. It's not just a totally dreamt up character. Um, they have that conversation with the narcotics uh, detective or the, before in the show, yeah, where they're where they're kind of like cashing over these arguments about the war on drugs that you've heard over and over again and you hear and which today. still to this day or again going back to relevancy very relevant um, honestly the more I think about it I'm not sure that this is a smart thing that we're doing right it seems to me it's a waste of time and as as even um uh what's his face uh, Frank's partner drawn in blankets even Bayless jumps on the bandwagon. Right. G doesn't say anything, but even Bayless is like, yeah, this is kind of a stupid thing we're doing. Yeah, yeah. He's saying if you, you can sell it and use the profits to pay off the national debt, which, like, from a purely business uh. standpoint, yeah, of course. Um, but the the other point that I thought was really significant in that conversation was that half of the homicides are related to drugs. So even outside of any sort of... Um, spiritual argument you want to make about it or how you feel like very practically for a homicide detective the war on drugs is making twice as much work 
Right, and, and and we know from from watching other shows like The Wire, what they did when they kind of legalized drugs yeah, in Amsterdam yeah. for that brief period. If you don't what know that did, if you don't know what Amsterdam is, we're not giving too much away. You could still uh, watch. You should still watch The Wire anyway. But so yeah. yeah, that that to me, I found that very current, very relevant. Yeah. Um, and then when they're in the car, when Bolander and Munch are in the car and they're talking about it, uh, and when he said, uh, the, the other thing too that is so true now is, um, uh, the, you know, there are people that are coming up in the world and how they won't get a break on education and then they, you, they can't get on welfare when they don't have enough, you know, enough money. And it's like, yeah, like, wow, that is still an issue. Uh, and how me. people get high because they're. Because life is horrible. Yeah, right. That's and right. I'm like, really hasn't changed in twenty some years. Hasn't changed. Right. I mean, this aired in 1993, and here it is. It's 2017 as we do this one. Right. And things are still not good. Right. Yeah. This conversation is just 25 years later, which is crazy. Which is, uh, and again, kind of speaks to the timeless themes that they're talking about uh, in this episode in particular. Um, and so they go in, they arrest this guy, and that's basically the end of that storyline. Again, how they got, it, it, it just, like you said, I think a page fell out of the script or something. It yeah. wasn't, normally you can follow things pretty easily. This was, I didn't understand it. Yeah, it seemed like the real story of this, as the as is most of Homicide, is again, not so much about the case itself. As much as it is about the detectives. And so really what this storyline is serving is to give us this insight into Munch and even a little bit of their, his relationship with Bolander. Um, so th- at the expense of following a storyline. Again, we've made that point ten times. Right. It's never really about the case. Yeah, It's but, always about the peripheral. What does it cause them to talk about? But I would say that to the show's credit... Very rarely do they have a case that just leaves you scratching your head as much as this case did. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, maybe with another watch, maybe someone at home could rewind and skip to those scenes and catch those a sentence here or there that we missed that kind of spent. And you know what, honestly, it's not that important. Right, so. right. Um, uh, so then that takes us to Bo Felt and Kay Howard who kind of have like a their own little like mini bottle episode in this one. And I would say, really, when you think about it, to me it seemed... It took up about half of the show was yeah. about them. Totally. And is this the first time we've seen people in court for that long? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely for that long. Um, and I think the fir- it's the first time we've seen anyone, uh, any of the homicide detectives on the stand. On the stand, right. Um, so yeah, this is uh, tying up and finishing up a storyline that had been on, uh, boy, like two, two or three episodes. Um, yeah, it was a while back. So far, and it's it's cropped up here and there, and uh, so they basically they've got their their person is on trial, and now it's really the homicide detectives now have an opportunity to help put the final nail in the coffin for this person. Um, and you can tell Kay is very passionate, but she also seems nervous. She, just the way she's talking. Oh yeah, she's very controlled and calm. And she's all hyped up in this episode from the get-go. She's lighting a cigarette in every scene. So she is, like, stressed out, pacing around. And um, now you wonder, is that because 
of what Bo says, that she's all hung up on Danvers? <laughs> is it about the trial or is it a little bit about both? I say it's about both. Yeah. She, she wants to put this guy away. She's worried he won't go away. But man, she definitely likes Danvers. Yeah, and she wants to look good in front of him. Of course. Um, yeah, you probably, uh, you know, these people are figuratively married to their jobs. And we're kind of seeing that come across. We're like, everything that happens in a normal person's universe happens for these people in, you know, through the lens of the homicide. Uh, and I think that's true, too. I know people who are like that in their lives, too. You know, but, uh, yeah, she's found her crush at work, you know, like now. So she's, her work and her personal life are now, I mean, we've seen that before with um, Bolander fell in love with someone at work, too. And, and um, by the way, this, the next them where... Bo has packed his briefcase <laughs> to prepare for the boring. T- that was just the stuff he started to pull out and offer her. Yeah. So first it's a bag of salt carrots. Then it's a juice bottle. He's got like a hard glass bottle of juice. Then it's celery. And then he pulls out this like, that little TV and asks her if she wants to watch Oprah. That has also has a VHS player. That is, I would use one of those now uh, if I had one. Um... Yeah, that was like, they were, the perfect rule of threes there with the three things that he offers, uh, the carrots, the juice, the celery, and then he gets to the TV, uh, which I guess is four. But uh, if he had gone on any longer, you would think, all right, now this is a sketch. Like, now they're doing just straight up Like, he was the amazing wit pulling things out of his bag for a comedy routine. Yeah. Um, And you know what? In my opinion, Bo got elevated in this episode. I think, because he was prepared, but not in a goofy way. He kind of helped Kay calm down, told her, don't worry about it. So he kind of went, no, he, hey, he wore a tie. Yeah, right. Uh, we didn't really see him testify too much. You just saw a shot of the door being open. But Bo kind of went up, in my opinion. He wasn't the slob that he always is. He improved a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, maybe like the the perfect place for someone who is rough around the edges and kind of slovenly in the way that he is, is a courtroom. Maybe that's where you put put someone like that. But yeah, he definitely he serves in bringing Kay back down a little bit, kind of grounding her and, and distracting her. Um, and yeah, it seems like, uh, yeah, Bo Felton rightfully is a guy who's like a little comfortable in a courtroom. Like he's uh, he, maybe he's been there before. And again, he, he you know the next scene where Kay gives her a test. I mean, Bo, whatever happened, we don't know. But he was not rattled. He did his job. Whereas Kay does get rattled. I mean, the 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 other attorney just continues to try to make her look bad, and doesn't really succeed till she screws up on how long the person was dead. Um, the look that Danvers give her, gives her is just, oh my God, it's a killer. I can't believe you you did that. And again, we're talking about Kay. Kay doesn't make mistakes. Right. Kay is the best one on the team. All her cases are black. She's good. For her to get rattled was really a departure. Yeah, right. And it's definitely, it's seeing her outside of her element. I mean, like, this is the first time we've seen her wearing a dress, right? So, like, you can tell that to her character, to the type of character they've written for her, she's not... Do- and there's nothing normal 
for she's her. She's not in her she's regular a, element. She's a fish out of water in this episode. So yeah, good point. Yeah, she's totally losing it. She's getting a little rattled. Uh, and yeah, like the the <laughs> what a great acting performance by uh, the that other lawyer. Um, and, yes. Uh, I don't know if they're a, a play, what are they? They have, there's a word for them. He's a, a, he was the defense lawyer, yeah, I guess, right? Right. We, yeah. Send us a <laughs> tweet if we're wrong about that. But yeah, the um, he comes off as so smarmy, and he is like asking her things that are like so non like. Like, all right, she didn't know how many times the victim got stabbed. She said multiple dozens, dozens of times. What does it matter? That's a sufficient answer, but him grill, grilling her on, oh, you don't know how many times? Like, really to question how thorough she is with her investigation. And by the way, another little great funny line when someone says, it's okay, Kay. I think it's Danvers says that. And Bo says, and Bo says, says stuttering. Are you stuttering? <laughs> it's okay, Kay. Yeah, um... Yeah, so that was a. Uh, you kind of saw that going off the rails a little bit, and then she gets a chance to redeem herself, and of course she absolutely does. Um, uh, Danvers keeps reminding her, "Don't bring up the other, uh, the other murder." Yes, the Lizette. Was that what the name is? I forget. Yeah, yeah. yeah me too. But uh, he says he keeps telling her, "Don't bring it up. Don't bring it up." Then at the end he brings up, he says, and of course I'm thinking, oh, she's going to bring it up. She's going to ruin this. She's going to I think by it. this time he was worried about her. Well, he says, don't bring it up unless he leads you to it. So when she's being cross-examined again, he says, are there any other murders that you can think of where people were stabbed and shot? And she says, yes. we have." And she looks at Danvers first and he gives her the nod, like, go ahead. And that's where they know they've got this guy on the ropes. And it looks like it's a pretty, uh, pretty cut and dry... Uh, clear win victory for them that of course comes back with a guilty verdict and of course you know the way she gushes over danvers and what she says i mean <laughs> Bo just laughs and like you're you're in love with him you have sexual desire and she no i don't and you're like of course you do right just the way she kind of holds his hand when he's walking away and she she admires him professionally and obviously there and and he obviously likes her yeah right. obviously right um and then uh, so after the they get the guilty verdict a really cool scene um that was all shot in one take is which was interesting is uh danvers comes out he talks to Bo and Kay, asks Kay out to dinner Kay says no i'm going out with Bo. Bo says no go ahead uh and then they turn and look as the as the, I forget his name, but the guy who was just found the guilty, defendant. the defendant comes down the steps and they turn to do like the one last look. Right. That of course he doesn't offer. The IF, as they say. Right. Which doesn't happen. He doesn't look at them. And it's what happened on the way down the stairs with Kay. Her coat gets stuck on the railing. Oh, really? And it was definitely not in the script. And, 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 and Felton says something like, oh, just like you're stuck on. I off the cuff, and it's a tribute to the actor. Yeah, because it was, and he just made it very smooth. She just laughed, and they went down the stairs. That's funny. Yeah, I did not. But yeah, that would also uh, a very serendipitous thing happen for again someone who's in a, in an episode where they're not meant to thrive, a place where we wouldn't normally see them. You know, see her totally, uh, totally uh, on her heels. Um. Cool. So that I guess the only other storyline left is uh, when uh, 
when G brings up the question that was on everybody's mind uh, almost like 10 minutes into this episode, where is Pembleton? Uh, he asks Bayless, and Bayless says he doesn't know. And he says something like, he's like your lover. You should always know where he is. Uh, because the brass, the boss, want to talk to Frank Pembleton. So Frank, they, uh, I guess he comes in and they, um, he gets sent up there. And they're thinking of having him replace the other um, shift. shift commander yeah. who we met an episode or two back who we know retired that G was friends with. Right. And Frank seems to me, I thought, to be genuinely surprised, and he gets puffed up by it. I thought. He has that look like, hey, man, yeah. I'm great. They're asking me. And he didn't see it coming, I don't think. No. And he even says when he first gets there, he's expecting to get reprimanded or, or fired. Or fired. Um, but then they're actually offering him a better job. Um yeah, you know, it, like he, he. I guess even G had to have had some suspicion as to what they wanted to meet with him for, um, and you know, we kind of get to that, I guess, a little bit later. Um, well, f- well, he confronts Frank. Well, they, but even before then, they specifically tell him, "Don't, don't tell anyone." Right, especially G. Yeah. Don't tell him. And then, of course, as soon as Frank and G see each other, which is kind of the next scene, he says, "What do they want?" And Frank makes up some BS. And which G doesn't buy, and he goes, I just don't know kind of why you're lying to me. Why aren't you telling me the truth? So I thought that that was a good little yeah. scene. I didn't see that coming. I thought he might swallow whatever Frank gave him. Yeah. But he did not. Yeah. Yeah, right. And that was also like he kind of, um, he like says, uh, Oh, you, oh, Pembleton says to him, do, do you want to bring me into the box and interrogate me? And uh, G's like, like, yeah, kind of. And that's where they they end up on the roof in that, com- in having that conversation in like... But let's go back. So before that happens, Frank meets with his wife for dinner. Oh, right, right, right. His wife obviously is high on him taking the job. Yeah. And I think, and, and correct me, I don't know what you think, to me, Frank hasn't made up his mind yet. I think he's still, his ego's still running at the dinner. You know, he wants to look good in front of his wife, but he must already know at this point he really doesn't want it. But he doesn't say that to his wife. Yeah, and that's like, so this is the one storyline that had the least amount of time in this episode uh, that I think you could have tacked on easily like another five minutes to, that I would have loved to have seen as well. Um, because yeah, it doesn't seem like, it, I mean, he's, you're right. He's definitely flattered to be offered that. Definitely. But I, I don't see it in him to, to do it. He's never like fully, like, you don't feel that he aspires to be anything more than he already is. And and I always felt he loves what he does. And of course, in that last scene, when they're on the roof together, he says to Jay, you don't go out on cases. And, the, and by the way, you get what he thinks about other people because he said you have the big this one he mentions, by the way, is Felton. Felton. Although Munch is, is the next the word one. out of his mouth. Yeah. But then he includes himself. Right. But it's funny that he mentioned Felton because yeah. we know he thinks the lowest of Felton. Sure. But to me, it, 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 it was, 
it wasn't mean, but it was like, man, he kind of tells G, you have a crappy job that I don't aspire to. And I'm thinking of it out loud now, thinking, what does G think about someone saying to him, you have a crappy That's, job? That is literally what he says. You have a crappy job. And I want yeah. no part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, man, because that also, like, that, so he, they have the com- he has a conversation with his wife where it seems like he's going to take it. And I then thought so. By the end of the episode, like, so does she? Is she still celebrating? She's yeah, who knows? Popping champagne bottles. Why did, why did they go out to dinner? I don't even get it. Right, right. Um, but uh, but yeah. So you kind of get the sense that that he doesn't want the position now. And G even says that like they were just playing games by pitting that weird between them. Like why wouldn't they want G to know? Yeah, right, it, like it didn't make any sense. It's not a position G could take. It's his. It's his equal, right? It's right, a, right. It's just another taking the other shift. Yeah. Now, do you think that G did know, or did he not know? Because he yeah. says, "I knew." That's what they were going to say. To I, I think he has to know. Right? Okay. He knows the position's open. Right. He knows it's on them to fill it. If they're going after who, who the person who is arguably the best detective on your squad. Uh, you know, it's between Frank and Kay, I guess, in terms of close ratio. But they, they even bring up, like, in his reviews and stuff, you know, how... Stellar we... reviews. Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, you would think if they call your ace up, that's what they're talking about, right? Yeah, it, 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 it to me, it wasn't a big stretch for him to figure out what was going on. Like you said, he knows the job is open. He knows they think highly of Frank. Um, maybe they want a minority... So it all makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, so then he says, because uh, the, the line that I got hung up on at the end of that scene is where really what Pembleton's doing in that is confessing. And he says to G, I'm, I'm sorry I lied to you. And G says, yeah, me too. So Now G has already admitted in that scene that he, they told him what they wanted Frank for. So that's a lie because he says... To Frank, why do they want to talk to you? Well, that's a lie. G knows why they want to. Maybe that's the uh, why he's unless, referring unless, to. Because I also the first time we went through that scene, because I had I had you rewind it. I wanted to see that over again and just catch that that last line. I wondered if they didn't talk to G after the fact and say, "Listen, we've offered this position to someone." Okay, all right. But yeah, I mean, I guess it really doesn't matter. But, um, but yeah, it sounded it was just a weird like, uh. G is doing detective work there, right? With Frank. He's using Frank like a scene. And like in a scene where Frank is telling him like uh you know, you don't do the work anymore. Like he he kind of does. Like he has to play these mind games and sort things out with his team. But I'll tell you what I saw is that there was a bond between them and he may not like that job, but he respects G. Because he really, and you know Frank is not always sincere. He was very sincere when he said, I'm sorry I lied to you. It hurt him. He values the relationship with G a lot. Even though he doesn't want his job, as a person, he respects G, I think, a great deal. Yeah. Yeah, So that was a good scene. It, it, It bonded those two together in respect. Yeah. And, and like, they, this is maybe, like, reading too much into it, but, like, G doesn't want him to take the position. 
Oh, I agree. He does not. You, like, you don't want to lose your best asset, you know, your your strongest team member. To, again, to a position where, like, Frank's skill set probably aren't best used in G's position. For all the reasons he said to G. Right. Your paperwork, buried budgets, babysitting, the doofuses on the Fighting team, with the, yeah. Fighting, fighting with, with the, the upper, upper. So how about that last scene? In the restaurant. Another first. Bar. Another first. First time Frank goes out to drink with the, the crew. Now, why did Frank show up? What what can you spec? I don't know. I'm asking. Yeah, no, no. Um, I guess uh, he had a chance to leave the team there and become a boss. And he gave it back. So he's... So do you think he felt camaraderie or love of of his fellow detectives and like he felt he needed to be part of them like I oh I had a chance to pull away why didn't I there's a lot of reasons part is he loves what he does and they kind of like say how great it is to be homicide we're smart we're this we're that they're very they're all kind of full of themselves yeah and of course, all of them know that he's been offered this. Position. Yeah, they all says, "Hey, what's going on?" Great detectives, all all of them. Um, yeah, they, you know that's interesting. Why does he go in? Why now does he want to be around them? Um, and they say that's the first time ever yeah. that he's ever gone out with them. Yeah, yeah. I guess that I guess that has to be it, right? Is that he's just you know maybe even putting off going home and telling his wife he's not maybe. taking the position maybe. a little bit more, but. But also because uh, symbolically he's you know he's uh, bought in more to being in their uh, in their uh, uh, company, and he realizes he is one of them. Even though he tries to think of himself as above them, you're you're one of them. So when he says to G, you have to babysit Felton and Munch. He he mentions you know I'm one of the babies too. Yeah. Yeah, and um, another like subtle thing that I'm sure is probably speaking to all this stuff that we're talking about right now is that um, every one of them has a different drink. They're oh, in di- different shaped glasses with different colored liquids in it. Cressetti has a like a martini, and uh, Munch has a just a clear glass of water, and Bo Felton has a beer. So yeah, they all have. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, all of them have a have a, a different alcoholic beverage, and it's just a. Kind of a high spirits ending to the... Uh... And they sing, just kind of like, just comes out, which I thought was really... It, I don't know, it made me feel good. Yeah, it was just right. like, wow, they're really a team. And we know, deep down, they like each other. But that day-to-day pettiness, and they don't all like each other. I still think that Frank doesn't like Bo Felton. Right. He never will. But there's a certain respect maybe that they all do a hard job it's hard being a detective and what do they have in common is that job yeah yeah so that's uh you know all these storylines that again really just live in this episode have all wrapped up yeah there's there's nothing to really continue at this point nothing carrying over very little interaction from the tim bayless frank pembleton team who like We've really spent a lot of time with over the last yeah, couple of I episodes. Mean, Tim Bayless was hardly in it at all. Hardly yeah. in it at all. But um, but yeah, fun fun episode, nice. And this would be, I think, this would be like a great example to show somebody what this show can do. 
I think if you wanted to show someone, here's a typical homicide episode where you have, you know, real serious stuff, very funny stuff, um, get to know the characters. Yeah, it'd be a good episode to show somebody. Who's the uh, winners and losers? Who are, who are your winners here? Wow. I, I don't know if I have a, a, a loser or, or, or a winner for this show. I, I don't know. Let me hear. I'm, maybe uh, we can. My clear winner is Crosetti, who gets suspended day living out his, okay. his fantasy of chasing around, hot on the heels of John Wilkes Booth running around uh, D.C., or any other conspirator killers. And by the way, they never tell you, like when he says Surratt, I believe that's Mary Surratt who kind of housed John Wilkes Booth. And she was hung, by the way. But they never explain to you all these names, but these are all real things that they're talking about. And he was taken across the street, President Lincoln, where right. he died in someone's house in the bedroom. Yeah. Uh, so that's my... How about, That's my how about winner. like a loser? Maybe Meldrick Lewis. Because I feel like he's kind of... Uh, he, well, well, for one, the case doesn't get closed. The Wong case will never be closed. Um, and two, like, the, you know, he, he kind of walks away from this episode uh, maybe a little disillusioned, maybe a little uh, a little beaten down, or, um, you know, he, did, he doesn't get the, the fine, clear-cut end that everyone else does. I, I could go along with your winner and loser. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening uh, to episode seven. Uh, leave a review. We're on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Shoot us an email. Say hello. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, episode seven is going from red to black. Thanks for listening.